0: Welcome back. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with...
1: Dr. Shiloh. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential.
0: It is good to be back. It's good to uh, be coming up with an, uh, something else. We we don't do these a whole lot, but this week we decided we'd do a listener question uh, episode because we've been having so many questions come in to yeah. the website and through our chats uh, for Get Vocal, so we figured this would be a good way to... Kind of jump in. I mean, I think that you know what the challenge is going to be here is that some of these questions are so good they actually could be fully shows on their own.
1: I did actually look through our list of listener suggestions for shows and picked a couple and threw them in here because I know we'll just like never get to everything, right? But you're exactly right. Um, but I think it'll be fun to tackle them. I. I I kind of like the energy coming off. We had a really good Get Vocal session last night, and then we're recording today. And so um, it feels sort of like another interaction here, even though we're just answering questions and playing it later.
0: Okay, how cool was it also that we were so internationally represented? <laughs> That's true. I, I mean, it, I, I'm I'm just blown away. I mean, it's it's Get Vocal. We have a lot of people that watch the recording of it on Facebook after it's done and watch it on right. YouTube, but the people that are showing up at, you know, it's midnight for them in England and Ireland, and, yeah. I,
1: and I'm they're just blown up.
0: away. Thank Hang you. Out. Yeah, it's very cool.
1: No, it's very cool. We Last night was fun because we had a listener jump on because she was working on a project, she's getting her master's in forensic psych at John Jay. And we talked about her assignment that she was doing on the case of um, Rebecca Zahao. And I have been watching the Oxygen series that they did on it all day today because I'm just like, I have to go back and revisit that case. It's
0: I don't fun. even remember it. I didn't know what you guys were talking about. So now oh I have to go gosh. watch it. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I, I'm, I'm sure people something. listening will remember it's it's the the woman that was found essentially... Bound and hanging off of her billionaire boyfriend's mansion in down in the San Diego area. Um, and it was ruled suicide. So,
0: and truly bizarre. I mean, I remember that th- th- I kind of like as you guys were talking about halfway through, I went, Oh. That weird case, and it was very, very bizarre. Yeah,
1: it is, it is. But I love that we just have that interaction where we're like, "Oh yeah, let's let's talk about this and um, give me something to watch on Sunday morning."
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So we have uh, some great questions here. We're gonna kind of chunk them by topic in a way, but we also have a lot of fun questions that people are just asking about us. So we're gonna sprinkle those in. So, so um, gosh, I, I didn't notate who sent this in, but somebody, I thought this was a good one to start us off, asked, what would you do as jobs if you weren't psychologists?
0: This is NACOs, isn't it?
1: Oh, is it? Okay. I think I it's
0: NACOs, yeah.
1: So, what would you do, Scott?
0: Uh, cult leader.
1: Oh, clearly. <laughs> Obviously.
0: You know, I've I <laughs> actually been struggling with this question because I... I at this point I don't know what else I would do. I mean, this is okay. This is weird. Before, okay, when I had gotten out of like post production and then gone into the field of psychology, and then kind of circled back around after doing research and got to ch- the chance to work in um, forensic settings and with law enforcement, and then got to work with cops um, and detectives, in, in the work that I do now. I, I kind of thought I would like to go to radio because I dated a disc jockey a million years ago in Chicago. And I thought that was like the coolest job, but not a music disc jockey. Like, I think news radio in the way mm-hmm. that like a really good news radio program is done can be really cool. Um, I mean, like, I mean, and that was, but it, this was before things got so crazy divisive now, which is, you know, sure. such a political phenomenon. Now I can't even really say it because I feel like this is kind of what we do.
1: I know. Look at what I you're mean, doing right now. How funny is that?
0: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, most the people Dr. that Scott
1: listen. Show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> most people, you know, I talk about my previous career as a professional dancer, and there is no career like being a dancer. There's no experience that's like taking a dance class and finding some mastery in, in your body in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a very short career. You know, if, if you're, unless you're going to be a teacher, which I was not a great instructor in that way, I'm a really good instructor in psych, but I'm not in that field. And I was a terrible choreographer. I just, that, that part of my brain, when I see good choreography, I, my, I just, I, I'm the biggest fan of, of talented for, um, choreography yeah. and that just wasn't my thing. So, but Same. you know, like being able to do that, like if I could all do it again, I think it, it would be great to have a, like a career that where your body will last another eight years. That would be really cool. But it just, by the time you're, you know, in your early thirties, it's pretty much. Yeah. You're be making plans for something else.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So what about you?
1: So I thought, um, you know, I didn't want to fall back on saying, well, I would have stayed in law enforcement because I did that job. And, um, even though, you know, my trajectory kind of changed and getting away from that, not kind of obviously did. Um, I really loved the hard sciences too. And one of those that I really, really enjoyed from an undergrad class was in geology and I love I I love the desert first of all, but I love driving through a landscape and just being able to look and tell the history of that area by what is going on and the colors and the striations and like all to me from like the smallest rock to you know a big landscape. I mean it's it's sort of like an investigation too, I think. So I, I think something in a hard science like geology, maybe even more specific into seismology where we live earthquakes fascinate me. Um, and so I think that one of those sort of areas would have been something I would have done. I was reflecting on this today and I'm like, what an easier life that would have been (laughs) Like just staring at some rocks in a lab and not worrying about all the things that are happening right now. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to kind of compare the, the human interactions we have that are the basis of our jobs and what would you do if that wasn't it? Because those are two vastly different things. It's not really, you know, working with people as your subjects.
0: I I think it's very interesting what you're talking about because whether you're in a hard science or a soft science, if, if, if you're not trained in those modalities or those areas, you which is most of the world the vast majority of the world is really not highly trained and although a, a good solid education should give you like the tip of the iceberg of how to understand those things is that people forget that science can be so understandable like it is it is this is a scientific method that tests this hypothesis and then it generates a theory and with, with statistics and, and, and evidence and it can be, it can evolve and be rethought of when more information comes forward.
1: Yep. Like people so think
0: mean. of it, think, think people think of it being static, like so static that like, well, wait, you just said this. 20 years ago, and like what? It's like, yeah, because they've got more information now. That's the way sure. stuff works. You have to, and we do that in our soft science too. We're yep. always hoping for new information to come in. Right. Um, although, going back to our episode about con men, we talked about, you know, one of the leading researchers in psychology in Scandinavia was, you know,
1: fudging all his data, fudging
0: all of his data for years, yeah. which just really screwed so many in the field. I feel so badly for his students.
1: Oh, me and too. his,
0: his, um, interns and stuff. That'd be awful.
1: Uh-huh. Oh God. That all that work you did was kind of a farce.
0: You know, now that you mm-hmm. said it, I do remember there was a brief time where I thought I would really have liked, or I would have enjoyed being a medical doctor. And part of it is because I've been incredibly lucky to have a, a great medical doctor here in LA that saved my life. Um, I don't know if I've told the story. Like I remember being at dinner one night and I was telling people about this absolutely bizarre thing that happened to me health-wise. Like I was in probably top shape of my life. Um, you know, sort of very, very late twenties, maybe early thirties. And I ended up going to the emergency room three times within a week and a half with this unbelievable pain. Mm -hmm. And the twice the doctor on duty uh, thought that I was uh, angling for pain meds. I mean, I could could tell they were like, and they were like, there's nothing wrong with you. You got to go home. And then I got referred to this doctor that was part of the medical group that I was, my insurance went to. And this guy I remember him going to his office the first day I met him and he opens up the file and he's not even looking at like film or he's just looking at reports and data and he's scanning it and you could just see the, the wheels working in his head and he goes, you've got an intestinal blockage and this is really serious. I mean, he, he wasn't looking at, or, right. I mean, he wasn't looking at any kind of scans or anything because you got blockage for your symptoms are telling me you have wow. got blockage. And so immediately we did um, a colonoscopy, which I was, you know, way younger, decades before you're supposed to do it. So anyway, massive blockage I got on antibiotics. He basically saved my life. I could have gone into sepsis so easily and died. So, but the story, fast forward, like a few years later, I'm at dinner with about eight people and there were several guys that I didn't know. I knew about half the people. And I was telling this story, like, here's this bizarre thing that happened to me, and uh, Dr. Procupek saved my life. And this, uh, this guy, go, he turned white, and he goes, are you kidding? He saved my life. Nobody else could diagnose this thing that was going on with me. And, I w- and then another guy goes, oh, yeah, he's the only person that was able to diagnose this and get me. What? Yeah. I mean, it was the craziest thing. So wow. I-, I was like for a while there, I thought that would have been a really great field. And now I read all these reports on Reddit of how frustrated <laughs> doctors are in today's American medical system because they're so hamstrung. They just can't, insurance rules everything and it keeps them from giving the appropriate treatment. And yeah, yeah, I never,
1: never even thought about that. I can't even watch an episode of ER without being squeamish.
0: (laughs) Really? That stuff never bothered me. I mean, I'll, I'll be squeamish when I'm watching a horror movie, but if I'm right there in the middle of something happening, I just kind of go into Uh, probably a trauma response. I like fix, fix it mode.
1: Give me a dead body over, uh, you know, somebody with their arm cut open, running into.
0: Please do the not ER. send us dead bodies. No, 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 no!
1: Please don't. That I, I take that back.
0: <laughs> so there we go. We've covered the field of what we might possibly yes. do in an alternate timeline or an alternate universe of our lives.
1: Yep, absolutely. So um, we're going to move into a category. About people are always interested in personality disorders, so we got a few of those. um Okay, so we have one. Are we going to say people's names? Should I don't think so. Name? Let's okay. let's
0: just say uh, this
1: one was submitted via email.
0: Yeah, um, a little bit. But let me explain why. Um, yeah, because we have had several of these questions are really kind of venturing into serious areas that may affect people's personal lives, and I know at least once. In the last week, someone has said, hey, can you answer this question on your show? If you have time, do not use my name. So yeah. let's yeah. just make a general statement that we'll, you know, we'll probably send you an email to let you know that we're, that you're going to be answered on this particular episode, but we won't say the names.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, Scott, warm up your narcissistic uh, DSM over there.
0: Excellent.
1: So this listener writes in and said, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on a narcissistic mother." who has an interest in her daughter dating your son. To step it up a notch, what about the mother appearing to have an interest in your son? Yuck, creepy. I have two boys, high school, college age, and we've dealt with this and have had a friend share her story with a similar incident. So that's interesting because it sounds like, you know, this mother is or father parent is not the only one that has dealt with this. And I'm wondering if it's the same narcissistic mother that's preying on boys in this town. I don't know.
0: Well, this gets kind of complex. First of all, I would say I'm not sure that's necessarily someone with narcissism. Uh, Um, There are narcissistic traits, but there's a whole shitload of other stuff going on that's really concerning. Very concerning.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a very specific situation that we right. know nothing about other than these, you know, four lines of an email. Um I Yeah, I mean, I think if we're looking at, well, let's, should we talk about just like narcissists and how they might parent or how?
0: Yeah, but before that, let me let me say something like, yeah. let me let me throw something in here. You know, I think the majority of the times, like if we were to flip the genders Mm -hmm. of this Mm -hmm. and we were to say that this you know if this was a a a male writing in and he was talking to another male who was making a comment about his daughter who was either a teenager or a young or a young adult or even a woman I mean like a you know it's it's completely inappropriate and the lack of insight in thinking that a statement like that is okay is very problematic and that indicates i don't even know if that's necessarily diagnosable as much as it is just really not having very good social skills or understanding boundaries like we're just talking about really bad boundaries
1: you're meaning like if a dad was like hey why does that other dad seem to be interested in my daughter is that what you mean okay yeah i mean definitely there's like the flipping of the gender roles and appropriateness here which we've talked about one million times with women and how you know they kind of seem to get off a little scot-free when they act inappropriate right um so yeah I mean I think I kind of looked at this obviously through the lens of like why would an adult female be interested in a teenage or even college age son of somebody that she knows I mean, that's just clearly, like you said, very poor boundaries. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it could, like, if the narcissistic piece, if that were present at all, again, we've talked about how narcissists, you know, see even their family members as just kind of characters in their life and extensions of them. And so if her daughter is courted by you know, attractive or charming boy, does it, that then feed her narcissism as a parent?
2: Could.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, when we talk about, certainly there's, there are subdivisions of narcissism that are not within the DSM. One of the most, well, the better known one is called a covert narcissist. And they almost do not present as narcissistic at all. They can present as victims and helpless, but their sort of way of manipulating the individuals that come into their orbit is to achieve the same goals that, a uh, uh, you know, sort of a regular run of the mill narcissist would be. They just want that, want that attached uh, attention and validation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just going back quickly to the, the hallmarks, um, Narcissists have an an exaggerated sense of self importance, um, a real strong uh, gravity and nexus towards entitlement and requiring constant and excessive admiration. They expect they see themselves as superior, at least on conscious level, but on an unconscious level, what that is is that's a defense. Like they f- see themselves as nothing, and usually. Um, narcissists don't fall too far from the tree. Narcissists are raised in an environment where there's sort of an inequality about the, um, the positioning of siblings. If there are Mm -hmm. two super talented, smart, overachieving siblings, and one that's just sort of run of the mill, their defense can be to build this narcissistic core. So, I mean, tying it back to what we're talking about um, in a woman, and, you know, certainly because women are social, are, are acculturized and socialized different in our world, it, that can express in a lot of different ways. But it's, I'm not really sure that narcissism is like the driving force here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know what else she's picking up on or he's picking up on that makes him think about narcissism.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a really great point. Yeah. There could be something else that's going on. I just, I feel like, I mean, I have luckily never been in that position. I think there's a big, I'm not going to give the the names of the example, but there's a book coming out about that people have been waiting to read. And there's an a, an incident with a very powerful individual making a comment about a, his colleagues, his trusted right-hand man's 13 year old daughter.
1: Oh, shocker.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, h- horrific in that way. Like, hey, your daughter's really hot. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that, there's just multiple levels of disturbing information on that statement, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. All right, Uh, you want to read the next one, and then I know we kind of jotted down some notes here. Right? I don't know if I wrote that or you wrote that because <laughs> it sounds like both of us. But if you want to take the lead, since you worked, I think you might have written this because if. Were you talking about um, in a correctional setting? Well, we can talk about both of those.
0: Like yeah, okay. Unity or correctional. Yeah, because they're slightly different. They're, they're, they're interesting. Um, so this question says, when working with those who have antisocial personality disorder in a clinical setting, how do you recommend treatment? Do you think it's best to teach them how to feign empathy? and exhibit healthy behaviors to lead normal lives, or does this make it worse for potential victims? The former. Absolutely. <laughs> the, absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's one of the, the great scenes in The Sopranos, if you're a fan of Sopranos, is when Dr. Melvie, who is Tony Soprano's um, therapist, she's in supervision with her mentor. Right. And it's it's interesting because... You know, Shiloh, you and I, we we will consult with each other about stuff in our private practice and in cases, but we don't give, I, I mean, as long as I've known you, we still don't give identifying information. No. Nope. I mean, part of it is the way that we're trained. I mean, we're, we're both sort of recent graduates within the last couple of decades, yeah. as opposed to people that maybe went to this field 30, 40, 50 years ago where the boundaries were very diffuse. Right. So here's this older psychiatrist talking to Dr. Melvie, and he's basically like I know your cl- I know your client is Tony Soprano.
2: Yeah.
0: We all know your cl- cl- client is Tony Soprano and we all know who Tony Soprano is. He's this huge mobster. Mm-hmm. But he has to he does something that actually is very powerful in that moment where he says, "Are you really I mean and I, I don't remember if that's if that's what the line is, but what he's saying is are you being ethical because we can't treat this personality disorder, right? You are teaching him how to mimic behaviors. He will not know what to do with those things except to use them to manipulate other people. I mean, what's interesting is that Tony goes to her for treatment of his panic attacks, which is interesting because panic is a physiological response. A person who is a has antisocial personality disorder absolutely can have sure a form of anxiety, a form of depression, a kind of panic attacks. It's not the same thing as someone who's more ter- neurotypical, right. but they can, it have doesn't that.
1: mean they can't feel anything. Right. You know, I think that's what, um, and we have a question later on, uh, again about sort of psychopathy. Um, but you know, there, there can be some level of feeling where, they might not like it. And, but again, television show, right. I mean, I don't know how many of them are actually going to therapy. So.
0: Well, when um, I, you know, we were taught, I mean, my, I was mentored and, and supervised in prison that, I mean, even if you're with a lifer and they're on your caseload, the goal in mental health treatment within prison is to help that person get to the appropriate level of functioning and get them out of the system, like get right. them out of the mental health system so that they're functioning well out of mental health, not necessarily using medication. So it's not like I'm going to do psychoanalysis for six or seven years or longer with these individuals.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a good point. The The majority of the populations you and I have worked with, aside from you know, the little bit of our private practice, which mine actually isn't geared towards long-term therapy either, but we're actually not seeing people for long-term therapy. You know, we're, they're in a system, there's a goal and it usually stems around alternatives to criminal behaviors. Exactly. But it's not not necessarily dredging up everything that's happened to them or doing the psychodynamic deep dive into their, entire history. So it, it depends. Um, but anyway, I think going back to this, a large part of our population that you and I have both worked with, there's a, you know, a lot of antisocial personality disorder there. Um, and we would treat them. I think the, the point to where you, you probably wouldn't recommend treatment would be again, if they're hitting that bar of psychopathy, because that is, there's just no research to show that that helps for any improvement of the disorder. And or
0: it, But what does work is treatment that is based on addressing consequences of action, more cognitive behavioral.
1: Right, right. So, and, and I would say that would be like ASPD. I don't even know if that would work with psychopathy. I, w- I mean, I don't I think Because so they don't care. They're, right. they're so
0: far on that spectrum where it's like, why would they care?
1: Yeah. So when you're working with, um, ASPD about behaviors, it's okay, don't do this again because here's the consequences to you. Not, oh, because you're creating a victim because they're not gonna be able to c- connect that empathy. Right. So
0: it's and nor do they like, they care.
1: <laughs> yeah, nor they don't care, but it's like, oh, do you want to end up in prison again? Do you want this? No. Oh, okay. Let me look out for myself. So that right. that's kind of that workaround angle that we may take. And if it keeps them from reoffending or, you know, uh, just violating someone in some way, then whatever. I mean, let's
0: let's go after. Did you? I don't know if you pulled this quote, but it's really good because this is. From, I know I've read this before in the research. If the client is capable of critical thinking, then I usually bring up the concept of social contract the individuals have with the world around them. Did you? Is that yours?
1: Uh, I think I did write this. That's really I think good. I, I actually wrote that. Um, so
0: I'm gonna read. I'm going to quote Dr. Shiloh of Ellie LA <laughs> no. Not So Confidential. If the client is capable of critical thinking, then I usually bring up the concept of social contract that individuals have the world around them and the short and long-term benefits of engaging in that contract. And I, I think you, if you wrote that, that's really great because that's very succinct and to the point. And it's something that illustrates for people that are really interested in the wacky world of personality disorders is that this is something that If you have been parented well, or you've done a lot of therapy, or you've done a lot of self-work, or you've been through recovery, you Mm -hmm. kind of already get this, Yeah. right? And you may not even be aware that you're good at this, that you get this in that way.
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of sort of social contracts that we use in cognitive behavioral therapy um, that can be even contracts with yourself. Um, I was just reviewing one with a client a couple weeks ago. So we're sort of, he's entering into this contract with himself almost, you know, about right. behavior. So
0: good well, question. There's a follow-up question too, by, so we, I, you went through and you grouped all these together. Thank you mm-hmm. for doing that. Cause I just had them all over the place. Have you seen the 1997 movie in the company of men starring Aaron Eckert? It's unbelievable. This is an older movie and portrays the perfect example of a narcissistic sociopath and the behaviors of gaslighting and Machiavellianism, Machiavellianism, the complete dark triad, the whole package. So
1: I have not seen it.
0: You haven't?
1: No. When I remember when we got this email and I was oh, like, oh my God, what? I have to well, watch this.
0: First of all, this director, I think, is it Todd Solentz? I'll, I'll have look, to it look, look up. him up on IMDb.
1: Okay, so the director is Neil Labute.
0: Oh, Neil Labute. No, I had it wrong. Todd Solins' thing about happy those. So Neil Labute. Okay, first of all, 1997, calling that an old movie suddenly makes me feel a thousand years old.
1: (laughs) So you're after I graduated high school. It is freaking old. Oh my God. I'm freaking old. Oh my God.
0: (laughs) Um, But it is a really great movie. I would say that you know, when it first came out and sort of the more focus about narcissism and psychopathy kind of came into the common vernacular, that's what was used to describe uh, his character. And it's okay. it's really interesting. So just to set it up, it is two guys that work together in an office. Aaron Eckert is, and I don't know if, if for those of you who don't know don't know Aaron Eckert, he is... He and Thomas Jane look a lot alike. He was uh, Harvey Dent in right. The Dark Knight Rises.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he's like a all-American movie star type guy, like just a big square jaw, blonde hair. I think he has blue eyes. Really talented, really talented actor. And he is sort of the dominant personality in this friendship with someone who's like a little bit more milk toast, passive guy and he pulls this guy into his narrative about women about women just being incredibly useless nothing but parasitic creatures that just feed off men and they're just barely above animals i mean some of the the monologues he has are just like wh- horrifying and he they decide he decides that he's going to Really kind of torture one of their colleagues, who is this wonderful young woman who is deaf, so it's sort of about the 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 pull between what happens to her because he manipulates her feelings and pulls her into a relationship. It's almost like a little bit like dangerous liaisons, but a more psychotic version of it,
1: yeah, it sounds awful
0: what I would say regarding the question about about the dark triad I th- I absolutely think that the dark triad here is portrayed well but it's not necessarily just a portrait of a narcissist because narcissists are around us all the time and they don't they they don't all go to this incredibly small subsection um that is represented in this movie because he's a sadist he's Clearly. an absolute emotional sadist and most narcissists can't be bothered you know, it's there's a great line. What is the Drew Barrymore movie that's the Cinderella and the fairy godmother is Leonardo da Vinci?
1: Yes. Um, crap. Okay, I have IMDb open. Okay. Find it. So
0: in that movie, there's a really great line that is so spot on where the wicked stepmother who is... Oh God, ever after Uh, Angelica, ever after Angelica Houston, I believe is Mm -hmm. the evil stepmother. And, you know, Drew Barrymore at one point says, what have I done to offend you? What have I done to, and she looks at her with this absolute blank disdain and says, how could I hate a pebble in my shoe? Like, you're not even really worth, you don't exist. You're nothing but an annoyance. Like you don't have any emotional weight. And that, I think, really kind of personifies and portrays narcissism really beautifully for the vast amount of the population.
1: Like how small they can make somebody feel.
0: Exactly, as punishment. Right. Whereas in this movie, certainly, yeah, Aaron Eckhart's character is a narcissist. He's a, well, narcissistic sociopath, like Mm -hmm. that's sort of been drilled down, or there's a portmanteau we call of a narcopath, which... You know, just to, to say again, I like some of the things that are being explored about narcopaths, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a true diagnosis. So once again, remember, this is for entertainment and they're creating a character and they're creating an extraordinary situation that thankfully is not common. Right. But the cruelty and the amount of energy that goes into being cruel now, looking back at it with a clinical eye as a professional, I look at it as more that he has these, it's almost like he's a sexual sadist, but he doesn't act it out physically. You know, he acts it out emotionally.
1: Right. Well, and, and what I'm hearing is this um, attitude about women, which is a really big dynamic risk factor for sex offenders that we look at what are their attitudes towards women like and it can be something that's worked on in treatment that's why we look at it as a risk factor what what here do we have to address um, but it's so much easier to sexually offend against somebody that you only see as an object and not just objectifying sexually but like you were saying that women are less than that they're just things to be toyed with and devoid of emotion that you even care about that's a, a huge huge dynamic risk factor
0: right because well and to to sort of parse out further remember that when we talk about looking at sex offenses and then do the subset of SVP sexually violent predators mm-hmm. You know, rape is not a sex crime. It's a crime of, it's a violence. I mean, it's, it is exhibited and it is materialized and it is made real by the, by an act of violent sexuality or violent sex, but it Mm -hmm. is about violence and about control. Right. So that's always important to remember. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's some really great popular literature. You can just, if you know how to Google and use, um, Boolean, um, searches, uh, There's a couple of really good writers. I mean, just once again, it's not really in the DSM. So it's sort of a hodgepodge of these uh, traits that we see in really kind of circling back around to domestic violence. You hear a lot about narcopaths being described Mm -hmm. in um, uh, domestic, yeah, intimate partner homicides. And so emotional blackmail, isolation, the act of gaslighting. We talk about gaslighting all the time. Undermining your confidence, um, which is certainly can be a part of gaslighting. I would just say these are all really horrible qualities. But yeah, whoever is out there listening to us, and I know we've got a a, a, a couple of thousand, which is wonderful. Um, you deserve better of a relationship than to ever be in a relationship with anyone that undermines your confidence. That's yeah. not a thing to have in a relationship ever. Ever. That uh, Dr. Uh, John Gottman, who is the relationship guru, this guy is absolutely on the cutting edge of science about what makes relationships work. And this really fits into his um, idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse of bad relationships. And, and but not only intimate relationships, don't be in relationships with people that undermine your confidence. You know, when people, people are telling you who they are when they do that.
1: Yeah. So now you've told us one of the four horsemen. Do you know the others off the top? Because people are going to want (laughs) to know.
0: Oh, okay. Well, so first is, um, I I don't know what order they go in, but one of them is stonewalling. You know, just digging your heels in when you are, you just refuse to budge on a discussion on a plan, on what needs to be done in the relationship. Stonewalling is a big one. Let me look them up. I'm totally blanking now that I'm on the site. So Gottman.
1: So the person that, that won't ever compromise and has to be right all the time when it shouldn't be a competition in the first place. Yeah. Relationship.
0: So, and, and I, I encourage everybody who is ever going to be in a relationship, like for one thing, it'll make you feel really good about the relationship you're in if it's healthy. But the four horsemen. And he added a fifth one later. But the four horsemen are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewall, stonewalling. And I got to tell you, like you know, along my my personal journey is unfortunately I came from an environment uh, where I was very defensive as a young person, and I was very defensive as a young man. And there are times that I struggle with it now, you know, because it's something that was sort of long-term low-grade trauma that I had mm-hmm. to sort of reorient and restructure my cognitive uh, psyche in order. And are you to the little me. brother? I'm the baby. You're the baby. I'm the baby of the family. So, you know, there's all, and, and that, certainly that is definitely a part of it, yeah. but criticism, you know, you can critique and you can express concern, but you don't criticize and you, and contempt, you know, rolling your eyes Um, Gottman does a really great thing. Uh, he has an institute where they have high definition cameras close up on the faces of people in of the the couples in therapy. And his interns and trainees are are slowing down the tapes so that they can uh record incidents of what we call micro expressions. And these are expressions that can last less than a tenth of a second but they are communicating and communicating to your partner that you know you don't believe what they're saying or you're sick of it dismissing
1: them yeah Yeah. it's it's pretty incredible
0: so go look that stuff up Uh, even the wikipedia page uh on gottman is really great the four or just look for four horsemen of the uh, four horsemen of relationships and you'll you'll see that one
1: very nice very nice Okay. Our next question says, my main curiosity about serial killers is which is more common? A serial killer having a genuine kind side for a select few while having a violent side for others? Or is the nice side simply an act? Basically all the time, all across the board. So again, like this is such a niche area. There are so very few serial killers that I think we can break this down in a couple of ways, but there isn't like a specific set of research to look at in this specific question, but it's a fantastic question. Um, and so I want to break it down, but I also want to give an example. So I think if we look at this in terms of psychopathy levels, again, kind of going back to psychopathy or thinking true serial killer, I'm guessing there's a level of psychopathy there. We can pretty you know, pretty much say like, okay, this is who we're talking about that we're dealing with. Um, generally, and I say generally, kind of going back to what we were saying before, they're incapable of feeling empathy for emotional pain that someone's going through or maybe even physical pain that someone's going through. However, can they have a kind side for a select few? Yeah, and I, I think we've we have anecdotally heard about that. Um, the one that comes to mind for me is probably like Israel Keys, who was concerned about how his daughter would find out that he had finally been arrested. Um but I, I, I think it is important to say like, okay, what is that concern about?
0: Right. Because right, right because let's if you I'm glad you thought of that example because it makes me think of uh Raider. You know Dennis Rader, the BTK, and he was a family man and a church man, and you know, and then the Golden State Killer. Many of these killers have children that are struggling to this day with the the horrific reality of what their parent did. So when we say where they felt
1: loved, they felt loved as children. They
0: felt loved, but was that love being projected, or was that sort of? I know I use this term way too much. Was that a biological imperative for procreation? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that like, I'm not really feeling this, but I know I have to protect this unit because it provides me with some sort of defense. You know, it's a-
1: Alibi. Well, <laughs> makes me look like the person I'm not, you know, all the above.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Sort of this dual, uh, the double lives. I, I did work with a serial killer one time therapeutically this individual had a child that we would sit and talk about that he seemed to care for very much um didn't have much contact with the child in the present while i was working with him uh but had you know was able to tell me about instances and and um experiences that seemed very caring uh especially for a younger child also had built a really close relationship with a friend that I know you and I have talked about before when people are co-defendants too and when they're committing crimes together like how does that feed off of each other Right. So that that could have been a piece of it. He also had a dog that he loved more than anything in this world and I know this isn't asking about pets but I see it I saw it as a kind side for a select few and even after his final arrest was very concerned about what was going to happen to his dog. So, you know, I think there's these Again, like, there's not enough research to be able to say definitively across the board, here's what a strong, robust study says.
0: Yeah, you know, it it reminds me, we've talked about this actually on the Get Vocal and on our most recent episode of, because we want to codify and quantify and use scientific method on this particular science or this phenomenon, is that we're looking at the end result of the crimes and kind of making concrete assumptions about what it was that drove that individual to do that. So there might be some other expression of mental illness or developmental issue that drives it that has nothing to do or not so much to do with psychopathy. Mm -hmm. It can be a lot of different things. I wanted to give an example in a movie that didn't do too well but was really portrayed well in the book Gillian Flynn who wrote Gone Girl. I'm a huge fan of the Gone Girl book. I thought it was I, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't know what it's about, don't see the movie, read the book. Yeah. It will twist your brain for the first 50% of the book. Like you're trying it's so well written and such a great concept. And another and that actually pretty much is a narcopath that yeah. that's a real full blown narcopath right there <clears throat> but she wrote Gillian Flynn wrote another book called it wasn't sharp a oh, dark dark places so dark places was made into a feature film a few years ago with Charlize Theron and in it i'm going to i'm sorry i'm going to go ahead and give away one go of the ahead. spoilers so if you don't Do if you want to like uh skip over the next probably 3 minutes
1: yeah, just kidding. Sorry.
0: So in this book, there's a, a a woman who, as a child, survived a really terrible crime that supposedly was committed by her brother. It was the murder of her mother. Uh, he did it in cahoots with a a goth girlfriend, and she's you know sort of she's been traumatized, and she's a really unlikable character. She's like she's a terrible, sort of a a loser, which is always interesting to me. Like one of the most beautiful human beings on the planet physically yeah, loves come playing on. these characters, you right? know, but the, the twist in this is that the son, her brother did not kill their mother. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time because there was a serial killer and this in, in the area going, he was a trucker going across the States. And what he would do is he would find Usually women who were on their last financial leg, like that were really struggling to support their family, support themselves for whatever reason, that they literally had nothing left. And he would make a proposal to them. And he would say, I will make sure that your family is taken care of because you can file a life insurance policy. You can do this and this and this. And in a year, I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill you. And, you know, you can set everything right, but this will be, you know, an agreed upon contract. And I guess if they... so dark. It's really, really dark. And I I can't remember like how he sort of like what would happen if the person didn't take him up on it. Probably he would kill him on site. But he and you didn't really understand.
1: What a choice.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm going to kill you now, or I'm going to give you a year and you can put everything right in order. And so he goes through with it, but at the same time that this, uh, her brother who's been acting out kind of, he, he ends up taking the rap. So I thought that was like, from a literary standpoint, was a really great idea. I just, but highly unlikely, like just one of those things that's like, that's such a movie version of something.
1: Yes. It does not meet our Occam's razor.
0: Theory <laughs> really it doesn't really nobody
1: does it. would ever think that yeah, but wow, interesting, interesting uh okay, so we have a couple of fun questions here, clearly submitted by uh followers of the crawl space cults. yes, how the hell we got a question submitted about Tim Polari? I will never know, but i'm I'm guessing it's Tim Polary because you and I don't know any other Tim, right <laughs> so somebody says. Is Tim as cruel as the rumors say he is?
0: Uh, no. Uh, He's really... He's a good good guy. Best best. pseudo-boss
1: we've ever worked for. Did we say it right? My flinching. Oh, (laughs) oh, stop flinching. He's not behind you. (laughs) You and I talk again and again about the amazing people we've met through just doing this podcast. I adore Tim. He is just, it, just from the first time at True Crime Podcast Festival, I was like, "Oh my gosh, the missing Waramari guy!" He's so
0: sweet. Yeah, I I completely agree. I wish th- I wish I had more words. I, I overuse the word amazing way too much, and I, I'll agree with you that we have met just absolutely stupendous people throughout this whole process, which is. People that are fans of this genre, people that are producing it, you know, I guess I, I I guess that there's sort of the expectation that because we deal with such dark stuff, that people are just gonna be that we're gonna be the weirdest people in the world and it's the most yeah. normal. I, I really think that it comes down to these are people that are all fascinated with human behavior and what right. motivates people. And I can't help but think. That it's because that we, these are all people that are willing to look inside themselves. Mm. And I think that's a good thing.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, so so
0: I remember Tim walking up to our little table and going, hey, how's it going? You know, it's like the friendliest. It was just great.
1: I know. I know. And Lance is okay too. I mean, he's the narcissist of the group, but (laughs) I think we solidified that when we talked about the dark triad with them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, also, didn't he agree? That's one of the marks of a narcissist is like, if you ask somebody, are you a narcissist? And they go, oh, of course I am. Why?
1: Right. And he just didn't waste any time. Okay. So this one's for you. And I'm going to say who this is submitted by. This is submitted by our number one crawlspace fan, Miss Esther Hilton. And Scott, she wants to know what shampoo do you use? Because your weave always looks so luscious and voluminous.
0: My my weave. <laughs> What's your secret? Uh, My secret is, is that, uh, interestingly, I mean, I was looking at pictures from when I was in my 20s. I think my hairline has like gone up, gone back. I lost, I actually lost big chunks of hair during uh, grad school, uh, that, that crux time when it was uh, dissertation and graduation, the stress level was so high. My, Mm -hmm. My hair really thinned out. And once that was all done and I was at a job, I was like, oh, no, no, no. This 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 gay man is way too vain to let that happen. So right. I actually went down the deep deep dark recesses of a rabbit hole on Reddit for oh, uh, for hair loss forums, and I there was so much knowledge there it blew my mind. And I mean, I I have told people this before. So anyway, I got like probably ninety percent of the hair back that I had lost. My hair is basically everybody in our family has fine hair. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily thin, but it's very fine or thinning, but it's fine. So I use an Argon shampoo, (laughs) Argon oil shampoo that I got off Amazon. It was the highest rated one instant results, like stopped losing hair almost immediately. Wow. Uh, And an Argon and the matching conditioner that came with it. But I also take a shit ton of supplements. I literally probably yeah, have... I have the most expensive urine in the United States, I'm sure. <laughs> I take... Uh, and this is not just for men. This is for anybody. I take collagen every day in my coffee, two huge scoops of collagen, which is not just great for your hair, skin, and nails. It's great for your internal organs and yep. the the cartilage, especially if I have so many dance injuries. Uh, this was like stopped my arthritis in its tracks it was amazing Beautiful. so i use uh, biotin choline inositol arginine ornithine silica selenium yeah i think those that's my hair Regiment. skin nails cartilage uh connective tissue
1: damn you diva look at yeah. that
0: it works i gotta tell you it works and well, water you, yeah.
1: dr scott md You see,
0: I know. See, well, I am, I think that's a little bit of the mad scientist and that's part of the doctor thing too, of like, you know, what you can do when, when you feed your body the right things. And I think that's just, it's people just think it's magic and
1: it obviously interests you because I can tell you about like something that I'm feeling or like a family member and in like two seconds, you have flooded my text messages with articles and sources to like look at this and what about this? That's and so
0: obnoxious of me. I'm no, so no, sorry. no, no, no,
1: well, no, not at all. And I'm like, I should really be doing this myself and I'm not taking the time to do it. Well, but you look, care so much about your friend's health
0: too. You I do. Really I really do. But that's also like, uh, probably, I mean, I do care, but it's probably like a little bit of. Um, maybe healthy narcissism because I want all of my friends to live to ripe old ages. And, you know, I lost a, a brother to cancer and I lost parents to Alzheimer's and.
1: Interesting.
0: But thank okay. you, Esther. Esther. Oh, by the way, Esther is a nurse. We just, I think we, I had just found out that a couple of weeks ago when she was in the chat room mm-hmm. uh, during Get vocal. So once again, we love our nurses. We're a huge yes, fan of all nurses. All of
1: our healthcare work- workers are amazing people. Yeah. So we're going to move more into other types of mental health disorders, kind of a mishmash here. We have um, some random things and they fit better into this category than definitely personality disorders. So this listener says, I would really enjoy if you guys did an episode on ASD, autism spectrum disorder. I have Asperger's, would like to hear what it takes to diagnose ASD. Can a person with ASD have a meaningful relationship and be happily married and have long-lasting relationships? So, I just that's to, a really
0: good question. I, I, think, I
1: think it's a great yeah. question. Um, I'll just give a little overview. Yeah, um, ASD. So it used to be that uh, autistic disorder and Asperger's disorder and other pervasive developmental disorders sort of were their own. Now they all sort of fall under this diagnostic umbrella of ASD. So what distinguishes Asperger's disorder, which this individual wrote in and said that they have from autism is that the symptoms are less severe. And usually there's an absence of language delays that we would see with autism and children with Asperger's disorder may only be mildly affected, but they frequently have good language and cognitive types of skills. So, um, anything more that you want to say about like diagnose it diagnosing? I mean, it, it, it takes an expert to diagnose and really put that criteria, um, diagnoses on somebody to plan their treatment.
0: Well, I'm glad you're saying that because we, I think, I know we've touched on this probably in two episodes, but I really can't emphasize enough that, you know, within the field of mental health professionals, the here in the United States, we have, several different areas or levels of education and licensure, uh, all requiring, I mean, you can get a a BA in psychology, which will afford you a a few different career paths in the United States, but you're not really getting, you know, you're not really going to do the deep dive therapy, nor should you at that level, unless you get specialized training like someone with a bachelor's, that goes and becomes like a certified alcohol and drug counselor. You know, mm-hmm. we need those. We need more CAdCs, mm-hmm. uh, and I wish that was a more of a respected uh, level of training. But social workers, marriage and family therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, LPCs, licensed professional clinical counselor, those are all masters and doctorate level clinicians. And even though, like, as an MFT. My training was on understanding how to provide individuals and couples and families with therapeutic services. And we were given a general education. But if there was something specific like severe ADHD, then it was incumbent upon me, if I wanted to work on that, I needed to go get additional training. And that's what makes you an ethical and competent professional, is realizing what your limitations are and what additional training you need. And unfortunately, uh, we have a lot of problems in, in this country because a lot of people who are generalists and never went the extra step to get that training continue to give sort of mediocre care to these clients. And that, that's a problem. So tying that back to what you were saying, the idea of diagnosing someone with an autism spectrum disorder You really need to go to somebody that knows what they're doing. In fact, I would say if you have concerns that you yourself or a family member or a child is exhibiting some of these symptoms, then you need to go to somebody who specializes in that. I'd also say, too, that we're trying to move away from, well, not we, but there is a movement within the autism community to move away from the word spectrum. Because the spectrum indicates that there's like a linear progression, when it's actually more of sort of a holistic, three dimensional view of how much, in what way, in conjunction with what other other syndromes or disorders. So Interesting. that's because
1: yeah. as I was uh, looking at this question, I thought, gosh, it feel like so many mental health disorders are sort of moving to this spectrum model. I mean, whether it's a personality disorder or others like. Which I think is good. I mean, it's a step in the right direction, right? You're not just this, this, or you fit in these neat boxes. But if there is a spectrum that you could maybe go back and forth across or there's a gradient, that makes more sense. It's it not... does.
0: And and I like But it maybe too. we I... can
1: be even better.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I, I And this is not from, this is, you know, I remember reading this series of articles by this one writer and several others who really are. Adamantly against the use of the term spectrum. And I, at first, I was like, oh, whatever, you know, somebody's always got to complain <laughs> about something. And the more I read, I thought, I, I, I see what they're saying. I really do. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. again, that's also people who are living that experience. Right. So it's more, I mean, it's certainly they feel it and perceive it in a way that those of us on the outside don't. And maybe we need to be a little bit more aware.
1: Sure. So, and you know, the, just addressing where the person asked if people with ASD can have meaningful relationships and be married. And yeah, I mean, of course, absolutely. absolutely. Um, it's it,
0: not, I just want to make sure people understand. So when we're talking about something like going back to earlier, if we're talking about psychopathy or ASPD, a person on, with an autism spectrum disorder is not incapable of feeling emotions. It's just that those emotions are expressed and experienced very differently mm-hmm. from people that are neurotypical.
1: hmm hmm Yeah, yeah, it, it might not um, resonate that some, you know, the person they're interacting with is having a particular experience, but it's not the same as not being remorseful or not having empathy. Uh, the more recent example that I thought of was Amy Schumer and her husband, Chris Fisher, who is a chef, you know, a pretty world-renowned chef from Martha's Vineyard. Um, he's diagnosed with ASD and they, you know, just had a baby. I mean, they I don't know anything about the relationship other than she talks about it openly and what it's like living with him being married to him and the uniqueness of their relationship, but how loving and special that it also is with his disorder. So I I hope, you know, that's an example um, that our listener can look towards and, Also, uh, of course, I mean, I just, that's the only way I can sort of answer the question, long lasting relationships and marriages, of
0: course, are possible. Absolutely. And they're possible and they can be incredibly fulfilling Mm -hmm. for both parties. Mm -hmm. I do think that this is one of the reasons this is such a great question is that it really, really makes us focus on or start to look at, well, how do they, how does an individual do this? or how does a couple do this or how does an individual with ASD become the best parent they possibly can because they want to i mean right. or they you know they want to in the same way that the general most of the general public wants to and i thought there's a great article that we'll be putting up on our resource page i'll I'll post it on the facebook page and on our sources But there was a really great breakdown of 14 steps, and I know that's a lot, but it goes back to what Dr. Shiloh was saying earlier, in that you really have to pursue a diagnosis because it is possible, especially with a toddler or Mm -hmm. a a pre-toddler that is already starting to exhibit maybe some confounding symptoms, uh, which might be not responding to sounds in the same way. Well, first you got to differentiate what it is and what it isn't. Maybe the child has hearing difficulties or maybe there's a um, language perception problem, which is just a a processing problem that can actually be fixed very, very quickly. um, And, you know, with the right kind of treatment, especially today with what we know about using uh, computers with toddlers. But you have to pursue the correct diagnosis. Here's a tough part. You have to accept the diagnosis.
1: Mm, yep. You know? Yeah. And
0: that, that's tough, right? I mean, we, we all have a version of that in our lives of it really because of the stigma of mental illness and because of the stigma we have about, about even medical diagnoses. You know, we're thankfully, we're getting away in the medical community from stigmatizing people for getting sick. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we can still do that. And I even say this when I teach, like I grew up in an era where people whispered the word cancer as if mm. you had done something wrong Yeah, have cancer. And yeah, it's not. Shameful. Exactly. There's, so there's a stigma. And certainly today, we're seeing a great pushback against the stigma regarding mental illness at whatever, whatever level an individual experiences it. But right. you know, you have to get to the point where you accept the diagnosis because you have to accept it in order to start engaging in the protocol. So staying engaged in the protocol for treatment means you have to stay motivated. Mm -hmm. You have to stay, you have to have an understanding for how autism spectrum disorders impacts the individual and the people around them and how, if it's a late diagnosis, like somebody's not getting this diagnosis until they're in their twenties, well, then it means they're going to have to take like a really painful look back at all of their relationships and sort of rewrite that narrative, rewrite that understanding
2: Definitely. of
0: what happened and what that crucible was that then got them to where they are now that has nothing to do with autism, right? Right, right. There's also managing uh, comorbid, comorbid or co-occurring disorders mm-hmm. such as uh, depression, anxiety. OCD is one mm-hmm. that gets very common, uh, and then uh, ADHD. And even within that sort of uh, OCD and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, once again, you have to drill down and make sure that the diagnosis is accurate and clear and not confounded by all these other complicating factors. So you continue to build on self-exploration and self-awareness. And one of the things that I've had to do when I have worked with Uh, couples in what I would say is ASD discordant relationships. I mean, I've, you know, I've worked with couples that are, where both had Asperger's I've worked in couples where one had Asperger's and one didn't, and didn't get the diagnosis until very late in life. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what we were able to do was drill down to, you have to create a relationship schedule. Mm -hmm. You have to have Mm -hmm. a relationship schedule. And even it's, it's very interesting. I'll tell you one of the most helpful things in ASD discordant couples was the love languages book, right? Because it just breaks it down into understandable little bites about what a person needs in order to feel loved. And for someone who has ASD for them to get it in concrete terms from their partner who says, well, no, I've read this book and acts of service are what make me feel loved and accepted. Well, then that gives this person with ASD, like it gives them something concrete.
1: Yeah, there's a blueprint. You take a little test online, take the five or the love language test online, and it spits out your answer. And you're like, okay, it's what my partner needs.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: Works for any of us. It does. And
0: another big part of it is really having to have a frank discussion about what the couple's sexual needs are. Sure. And one of the things that can confound this, and I remember this was very difficult in a couple I had years and years ago, was that the individual with Asperger's also had OCD Mm -hmm. and sex, which when it worked, could be very gratifying for both partners when it didn't work, it was a matter of we varied our progress through the act of intimacy one step, so now we have to start all over oh, or, gotcha. or it's all blown. We got seventy five percent of the way through, but mm-hmm. you you made too much noise, and that was distracting for me, and now i'm I'm off my game and interesting that's a thing that happens um, so meeting each other's sexual needs uh, parallel play understanding sort of, uh, and that's about more, uh, childhood development issues.
1: I mean, uh, but really who hasn't had a sexual partner where they've made a weird noise and you've been thrown off your game.
0: Well, and hopefully, <laughs> and hopefully you have a sense of humor about it and you can laugh, right? Of course, you know, you, right? Can, you can laugh and, and that laughing really <laughs> is a great, is a great intimate moment in itself. And that's when people are allowed People start opening that door to being real with each other, which is wonderful. That's a great thing in intimate moments. So once again, going along these lines, you know, kind of nailing out these last few points is coping with sensory overload, which is a very big deal. That also kind of links back to the expression of sexuality is that Mm -hmm. sex is hitting everything. It's hitting tactile, olfactory, fantasy. It's hitting all of those things. And it's supposed to, it's supposed to be really great, but that can be overwhelming for some some people with ASD. And that doesn't mean it can't be managed and it can't, you can't find workarounds, but just not getting frustrated with your partner and thinking that it's about something else. That's one of the things that I saw in the several couples that I worked with that were ASD discordant was not understanding what was going on for the partner and thinking that it was personal. Like oh he did this because he's mad at me. I'm like well no I think you may be actually misinterpreting. Let's let's check what was going on for you. And this is in the therapy room that partner has a chance then to understand. Like whoa I I had no idea that was going on for her. Mm-hmm. You know because mm-hmm. people that's one of the things that should be tattooed on the inside of everybody's eyelids is stop reading minds or because you can't. You can't right. read minds in relationships. No matter how well you know the person, don't make an assumption. Always check in. So, yeah. working on uh, communication and sometimes with ASD, I mean, uh once you get, you used a great term Shiloh when you said blueprint, and individuals with ASD really benefit from diving deep into uh parenting books. It's always okay. like really great. Yeah.
1: Oh, great.
0: Great. Well, so sorry you. for the long diatribe. No, but I think that I'm... was such a great question. I wanted to spend a little time on it. It's not really a forensic question. It's more of a clinical thing, but hopefully yeah. it will help people.
1: I didn't know you had worked with individuals in relationship work with ASD. That's awesome.
0: I did. I mean, I have. And I, I yeah. felt like, I, I felt like I, and that, I, I give that example because, <clears throat> once again, I, I was out of my depth.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and two of the couples that I'd had this experience with, I actually said, I'm not sure if I'm the right therapist for you because I don't have extensive training, and both of those couples were like, but we trust you. Okay. So that's more important for us. So then I felt like, well, oh, shit, I need to go. I got to go consult. Yep. So I went outside and went to people that, that do this kind of work, and I paid them to Mm -hmm. get better at doing these things. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and I I think that's an interesting point to bring up when you said like, you know, obviously there's, this is such a huge field, right? And there's so many areas of expertise and you can't possibly do everything. And you and I have our areas in which we really focus, but also, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, we cover so much, even though it's all in the realm of forensic psychology we are not experts on every single topic we pull up, hence the reason we have to do research for each episode.
0: By the way, some of our fans blow are way better
1: at <laughs> <laughs> some of these than, than we are.
0: I, I mean, I'm, I, I am humbled by it, and yeah. I think it's great. And I'll tell you one of the things that it's so impressive about some of our fans, and not only just our fans, but fans of this genre, genre. yeah is that they're erudite and autodidacts. They go and they educate themselves and they think critically about it. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. was really surprising to me. I would not have thought about that. I mean, I would not have expected that in in this fan base of this genre. And it's really impressive.
1: Yeah, they're not just going to the first two things that come up on Google. Like, you know, they're doing some good good research. But yeah, I just, I wanted to acknowledge that However, we come off in a certain episode, we are doing, with the way that we know how to do research, a good portion of that is is done before each of our episodes because we can't... One, you can't possibly keep up, like you've said many times, on all of the latest research. So it could vastly change from even stuff we know well from right. 10 years ago.
0: And I'd also say that like, if it's something that you look at it and you go really? Is that, mm-hmm. that seems odd. Good. Research it some more. You yes. know, look at, look at the references. Don't just take it, just see if they actually have citations and if they're basing it on stats or if it's someone that is giving sort of an anecdotal presentation, Well, will look at what their presentation is. Like much, the reason why I said about the issue of, describing things as being on a spectrum. I really respect these authors Mm -hmm. for taking this stance. I don't necessarily, and I feel like, well, they have a perspective that I want to be open to. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. For sure.
1: So this is kind of an interesting one. Um, It was new to me. I hadn't heard about this at all, but the person says, caught an interesting fifth estate, which is a Canadian news show episode about Havana syndrome. Was wondering if you could address that and more broadly mass hysteria. So, we, yeah. when did we talk about mass hysteria in our Folie de episode? I think we kind of touched, touched on, on, it. on it. That's
0: probably when we touched on it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've touched on it there. I, I had to look up what the Havana syndrome was before this. Um, so, but as in, soon as
0: you did, you, as soon as you looked it up, you remembered what do you remember? I, that? I did.
1: I did. Uh, it, it wasn't anything that really caught my attention too much, but.
0: It caught mine because it sounded like so (laughs) sci-fi. Of course. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So in, in August of 2017, the U.S. and Canadian embassy staff or the diplomats that were in Cuba were starting to report that they were suffering a ton of different health problems, headaches, loss of balance. Uh, lack of sleep or disrupted sleep and concentration and problems with their memory and so what I think we all think like okay Cuba oh my gosh the the people from the United States and Canadians are there what are they doing to them and they thought that it was like acoustic sound wave that they were yeah that they were
0: using like sub like really low frequency blasting you know trying Mm -hmm. to affect their cognition but people they were having but they also, I mean, they ruled out that it wasn't psychosomatic. I mean, that there were real health issues right. going on. Right, these people. Right. And they were they were having cognitive difficulties, like not only memory but problems concentrating. And it felt mm-hmm. very like, oh, this is a secret attack, you know?
1: Yeah, and all of those things. I mean, you can do an assessment and see if those are deficient in someone rather than just kind of them making it up that their memory is bad, their concentration is off. So, yeah, you. Like you said, like this was, this was real. This could be documented. Um, So what did they decide? What did they find out,
0: Scott? Interestingly enough, I had completely forgotten about this particular episode because we didn't hear anything about it again. It was in 2017 Mm -hmm. and it was big news. And there was like, what's causing this? What's causing this? We're pulling our ambassadors home. We're going to do all this stuff. And it turns out that um, there was scientists that I'll post the article as well from MedPub is that there was a biological cause it was like really they had all been exposed to high levels of pesticides that had been used in the building terrifying yeah and there are and once again it's one of the reasons that you know one of the things that's really great about the U.S. is our FDA is usually really good about Banning substances that are not good for you. Yes, it yeah. kills bugs, but it may deform your children. You know, we had that <laughs> right. problem back in the day. So, what they found out was that it was um high levels of pesticides that are banned here in the US, was my understanding.
1: But they but, didn't ever say that that was malicious. Like they were using no. those pesticides just
0: to at, poison them or something. Right, yeah.
1: right. Okay. Okay.
0: Doesn't mean it didn't happen.
1: Well, I just true. Didn't see it.
0: True. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I'm just being facetious when I say that. I don't know. But like, um, I think it was more likely like, you know, it's the reason when you get your house bug bombed, you know, they, they tent your house mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, you can't come in for 48 hours because right. this is not good for you.
1: Yeah, definitely. I always hear that. And they, they're they like double bag your food. And I'm like, I am not freaking eating anything that I leave in there. If I can't be there, are you kidding me?
0: Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> um, is. so I did want to say just touching on the subject of mass hysteria. There is a forensic, there is an example of something that happened years ago that's really fascinating and I never knew about it until about four years ago at Halloween on This American Life. So many people will remember that Orson Welles did a radio show in the past. I think this is in the 50s. And it was... A news broadcast that was presented as if it was real. And it was broadcast again across the US. And it basically was that the Earth was being invaded from Mars. And right. it was, it terrified the nation because a lot of people did not know that it was a radio play. It was so well produced. And it was produced as if it was happening in real time. And reports yeah. were coming in from the US. There were reports of people killing themselves yep. here in the U.S. because they were terrified that the Martians were coming to get them. There were people shooting at their neighbors. There was, I mean, it was there. It really did cause mass hysteria. But the loss of life actually was pretty low. Mm-hmm. What most people don't know is that a radio station in South America did the same thing. They took the script mm-hmm. and they adjusted it. To, uh, they changed all the locations. Instead of it being Peoria, yeah. Illinois, it was happening here in Colombia and here in Argentina. Yeah, and it when when
1: was that? Did they do that? I in think South that was
0: in the '60s. Oh, okay. So they, I'll, we'll I'll check on the dates, but I remember it being fascinating because it went bad really quick. Because not only were people panicking, and a couple of people killed themselves when the listeners found out that it was a radio show. Oh They shit. set the radio station on fire and killed like 10 people in the building. They were so angry.
1: Whoa, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Wow. So
0: mass hysteria. And then the, the absolute anger at being betrayed like that was, or their feeling of betrayal was led to death. I mean, what a way to go being trapped in a burning building.
1: Yeah, well, God, I know. Um, But it's interesting, like the different things that we can kind of put under mass hysteria, because that's like, that's one where people are being tricked, not purposefully, right? But I mean, they're being tricked and thinking this thing is really happening. So there's not like this hallucination, Right. or, um, you know, uh, delusion that's going on with it. So we have that where a large number of people are all thinking this event is happening, this dire event. Um, And then, you know, there's other forms of mass hysteria that we've talked about in the past where there is sort of this, this delusion on a grand scale that everybody is sharing that there can really be, you know, no explanation found for some of them, even though I'm sure, like, with the technology and science that we have today, it might be something like this Havana syndrome if we were to go back and be able to investigate, you know, some of these that happened centuries ago that we hear about.
0: I think also it's important to, for people to, for our younger listeners <laughs> to real, I mean, mm-hmm. the original broadcast was in 1938 when, you know, radio was a life-changing experience for mm culture around the world. And, you know, it was because it was an auditory medium without visuals. I mean, it it became central to uh, American life very, very quickly. It had uh, a huge impact on music styles evolving and developing because now people from other parts of the world could hear sounds from Mm -hmm. New Orleans jazz and Appalachian music. I mean, and and rockabilly, there's all these things that happen. But you know, we take it for granted because we can log on and watch any kind of science fiction movie or horror movie on Netflix at any time and go, oh, I'm settling in for a fantasy. And certainly, um, I mean, I just think that's very important to remember that things were very different then.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think like, could that even be pulled off? You'd have to have like all of these influencers on Instagram in on it reporting that this is happening or something, you know what I mean? Like it, it couldn't even be done performatively like that, the way in which we get information so spontaneously. And
0: I think somebody was saying that they, they were kind of going along the line. One of the the articles was saying that only 2% of the people that were interviewed following that broadcast really thought that it was true. Okay. But it was still a large audience that fell for it. And Mm -hmm. anytime somebody is going to kill themselves as a result or, or take action and and arms to violence, you know, that's significant. We should be more careful about that.
1: Well, and 38. So, I mean, the great depression, you know, is, is still going on. Right. I mean, is it,
0: yeah it's only just and, coming i mean they're the well repairing from it took decades so
1: yeah and so you think about what an awful position people are in already i mean it would be like that happening in you know the end of 2020 which is <laughs> incredibly anxiety provoking for everybody yes, so far exactly. so, geez god let's not let's not put anything out there um cool let's see So, do you want to do this next one? I didn't put anything down for it. Sure. So it's a big one. So this
0: this is a big one. I I think we'll be careful about how far we go into it. What -hmm. are the first signs of mental illness, especially with children? When to start pushing for testing and evaluations? What is the point of committing a child to mental mental care? Um,
1: it's a lot. I mean, that's a
0: that's yeah, it is. Even though, what do you want to hone in on? First is that, uh, read a book, <laughs> you know, if, if you're going to be a parent, you need to, you know, take the suggestions that you, first of all, make sure you're getting prenatal care. Sure. Uh, take, you know, certainly listen to the people around you. If you had good parents or you have people that are trusted, other people that are going through the parenting process and you feel like they're trustworthy then absolutely take to heart theirs, but go and also do research on your own. Um, There are great parenting books out there. It's not like there's anything staggeringly new in the last 10 years. But it's important to know because some of the first symptoms you're going to see in children would be uh, unable to uh, make eye contact or... They're not hitting the developmental markers. I mean, when you, when, I mean, I remember after you gave birth, I just found it absolutely fascinating because my specialty is not in childhood development, Mm -hmm. but in reading the articles about the milestones, Mm -hmm. it's like right within that week,
1: you were getting to see them (laughs) right
0: right within that week that she was supposed to pull herself up on the couch. You were sending me like, here she is. Mm -hmm. She just started crawling. Oh, here Mm -hmm. she just stood up on her own. I mean, it like it's yeah crazy. I mean, it's like kind of this miracle, you know. So if you are familiar with what those developmental stages and processes are, and you're noticing like, oh yeah, my toddler is not hitting those, that's something definitely. Yeah, I
1: I I think it'd be very basic. I think it can be information that anybody can get, even from you know, probably a thicker pamphlet from their doctor. My doctor gave me a book. And I know everybody has different access to mental or not mental health. So you say making mental health, uh, prenatal health care, but there should be some literature that you can be handed that is going to give you those basic milestones so that you can at least go and look at them, you know, when along the way, even if you're not reading a a giant book ahead of time, because I mean, let's be real. Not, not everybody is going to have the ability or access to be able to do that, um, I wasn't reading books on, you know, mental illness regarding children because nobody is thinking that way. You're just like, how do I keep this thing alive? (laughs) Um, but go with a lot of your gut and trusting the people around you that are also interacting with the child, because even if you've never had a child before, you can still maybe know when something is off and you might not know how to articulate it, but that's okay. As long as you are going to an expert to get that looked at. But you're also hopefully surrounding yourself with other people who have had children, maybe your parents, and this is their grandchild, to be able to lean on their experience to say, you know, what's going on here if they're sensing something. And again, you know, you don't have to know exactly what it is or isn't.
0: Well, right. But tying it back to our ASD question earlier, mm I think this is an important thing to say. I want to give two examples. I have a, a work colleague when I was still in entertainment, wonderful, wonderful woman with a son who was severely autistic. And she noticed, you know, that there are some developmental markers. I mean, this is, this is 35 years ago. Because she, she was telling me about what happened to her okay. when she was first pregnant. Maybe 30 years ago, I guess, because he's probably about 30 now. And she told me the story that was so infuriating. This was before I was in mental health. She was talking about recognizing that something was going on with her kid, going to her doctor, and the doctor going, oh, yeah, um, he's, he's autistic. Just raise him like any other kid. What the fuck? And she was like, "Well, that that can't be right." And he goes, "Oh no, look, like, like you know, like you want to, we want to do what we can to mainstream them. It's like they just need to be treated just like everybody, you know, just like other kids." And then she went to a specialist, and the specialist was like, "No, no, there are things that have to be put into place right now. You have, oh you know, you have to use this special toothbrush without bristles in order to stimulate the gums, yeah. so that you." you um, normalize different textures sure. in their mouth, or they'll, they will only eat a specific range of foods that may not be enough for uh. them to take in nutrition. That's just one example. Like she gave all these things that she had to do. Now, the other example is a, a, a friend of mine that I moved out here with, and uh, their son, same... Same experience of experience of noticing that there are some things off. Mm -hmm. And she was on it. I mean, her doctor was like, Yeah, this is what's going on. Here, here's what you need to do to educate yourself. Mm -hmm. And she completely altered her entire life Mm -hmm. to do what had to be done in order to help her child develop and normalize to. Uh, to not engage in like sort of isolating behaviors and sort of the tendency with autism is to to pull inside Mm -hmm. which is sort of like other disorders but that you know it's uh, autism is not schizophrenia at all but there's a tendency to want to go to an interior life and you have to constantly pull your child away from that so I mean those are just two examples once again is you know if you're not getting the answer, if you don't feel like you're getting a comprehensive answer from your doctor, go to another doctor.
1: So this this listener that wrote in gave a little bit more of a backstory. What would you say to someone who's concerned about something that is like a psychotic disorder? Because can we even see that in childhood?
0: Rarely. Yeah. You know, it's very rare. It's very, very rare to see symptoms of psychosis in in toddlers you right. Know, um, right. Or and even then, older
1: than
0: that. Right. Even older. And, you know, sometimes I mean, kids are weird. Like, and that's one of the beautiful things <laughs> yes. about them is like, they can be so odd and weird and like, but there are kids that are, you know, I think the example, our question was, is was a loner isolated and then the sort of suspicious. And then it turned into schizophrenia, paranoid type mm-hmm. or it, what that's what the final diagnosis was. I would mm-hmm. say that kids are weird. But if they, if you notice at like 11, 12, 13, that they are eccentric to the point that it impairs their ability to have relationships with other uh, similarly aged children, then that's something that needs to be looked at. And it can be one of many things. It could be that they could be a a real uh, introvert, like highly, highly introverted, or it could be. Other things as well,
1: yeah, yeah. But you're generally you're not going to have that quote unquote um, psychotic break or worse symptoms or manifesting until they're into adulthood.
0: Now, having said that, you know, there's a lot of there are several really good YouTube channels that are generated by individuals with schizophrenia that were diagnosed early and medicated early and given appropriate treatment from specialists working with psychotic mm-hmm. disorders. And they are very high functioning in their lives, like very high functioning and able to have quality lifestyles. And they're able to share their experience with us about what it's like. Right. And I think that one of the things that I would want to say about this question is don't ignore when your kids are hurting. Check right. it out. Like, you know, yeah. question peace fine. of mind. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And remember, you're the parent you know, there's a certain level of healthy individuation where your kid is slamming the door and saying, shut up, mom, I don't want to talk to you. But there's a, you know, a little bit of that is great. But then, you know, you have to push through and make sure that your kid is hitting these milestones. And maybe their milestones are different from the majority of their peers. But you still want to make sure that they're on the path.
1: Right, right. Very good. Well, I'm thinking we turn this into a two parter. What do you think?
0: Yeah, we're going to have we to. just we've release it back so... to back. and We should, because we've got well, more. Are you up yeah. for it? Are you up for pulling I'm, through?
1: I'm up through? for it. Um, so why don't we uh, break here? And this will be part one. And we will continue with these questions and get them out to you guys soon. Um, please be sure to join us on our Get Vocal, like we talked about at the top of the episode. And on our social media as well. Um, We are at Twitter at LA Not So Pod and Instagram at LA Not So Podcast. And of course, we're on Facebook too. So we will see you next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye guys. Take care.